Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. In this, the 28th installment of Discovering the Old Testament, we will lay some important groundwork before we plunge into the world of the great classical prophets. We've had a mild taste of Hebrew prophecy, broadly speaking, when we looked at the career of Samuel and that of Elijah and Elisha. We are about to start on the book of Isaiah, where we will spend some time, but before we do, it's a good idea to take a look at the changing nature of prophecy and the role of the prophet in the Old Testament. One thing that strikes us right away when we talk about the Israelite prophets is that you don't decide to become a prophet and then train for it. The text is quite consistent throughout the history of prophetic figures. The calling of prophecy sort of happens to you whether you want it or not. The metaphor is one of a spirit interacting with a nascent prophet. Ezekiel describes how the hand of the Lord fell upon me, or a spirit lifted me up, or even a spirit entered into me. Jeremiah tells that the word of the Lord came to me, or Isaiah that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Communication with God is the result of possession, for lack of a better word, by God's Spirit. The divine selection process has important implications, as we shall see later on. Even though possession by or direct contact with a divine Spirit is found throughout the Old Testament when speaking of prophets, how prophecy expresses itself and how prophets act in such cases changes over time. In earlier times, such as the time of the judges or the very early monarchy, we find prophets in an ecstatic trance. The Bible speaks of roaming bands of prophets who seek to enter this altered state of mind using music as a means of inducing an ecstatic trance. The Hebrew verb hitnabeh refers to the behavior commonly found among prophets, in other words, the trance-like ecstatic state, among other things. But it does not necessarily denote that actual prophecy is taking place. The best translation of Hitnabeh would be to act like a prophet, or to play the prophet. So it can apply to pretenders or the mentally unbalanced, as well as actual prophets. That said, the behavior that distinguishes real prophecy from its counterfeit included certain recognizable behavioral cues and patterns. Not all possession by the divine spirit is a good thing. Saul has a couple of such encounters. In 1 Samuel 18, we see what the text calls an evil spirit sent from God that takes possession of Saul and makes him hitnabeh, literally, to act like a prophet. However, this acting out is violent, uncontrolled, and directed at his protege, David. Another example happens later on, when Saul has given in to his hostility towards David, and sends messengers to apprehend and bring them in. The plan goes awry when the messengers encounter a band of prophets and get 
well, caught up in the spirit of things, one might say, they begin acting like prophets and are unable to carry out their instructions. So Saul takes things into his own hands and sets out personally in pursuit of David. He also runs into these prophets and acts like a prophet. Specifically, he strips off his clothes and lies on the ground naked all day and all night. This is the source of the rhetorical question that became an Israelite proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? The implied answer is, no, Saul is not a prophet. He's nuttier than a Waldorf salad. In fact, most of the cases of ecstatic experience in the Bible do not produce a divine message. As often as not, ecstasy was more a sign from God, a sort of authentication or sign of divine approval for some action taken. However, ecstatic prophets among the Israelites had one very important function, and that was to inspire battle fervor in the people before going to war. For example, just after his ecstatic experience, Saul is inspired to go fight the Ammonites. The prophetess Deborah was explicitly carrying out her function as a prophetess when she riled up Barak and the rest of Israel before they went on to defeat the Canaanites. So while Hitnabeh can carry a pejorative connotation of an ecstatic who is simply nuts or someone who is a pretender, as well as denoting someone who is truly possessed by God, another noun, Navi, unambiguously denotes someone who is a genuine prophet. The need for a distinction between those who act like prophets and those who really are reflects not just the unreliable nature of ecstatic prophecy, which gradually grew less common in Israelite tradition, but also because many foreign nations relied on ecstatics as part of their efforts to discern the will of the gods. Divination has a very long and quite colorful history in many parts of the ancient world, but with the possible exception of ancient China, it's hard to think of any region outside of the ancient Near East where it reached such high levels of complexity. Where ecstatic prophecy is concerned, the Mari tablets, which predate the arrival of the Israelites in Canaan by about a thousand years, we see references to ecstatic prophets and prophetesses called Muhum and Muhutum, respectively. The big difference is that the Mari ecstatics were professionals, as were diviners and soothsayers in the rest of the ancient Near East. It was a profession that demanded a lot of training, especially in the case of interpreting omens and portents. Archaeologists have uncovered vast archives of omen catalogues based on a variety of events and rituals. It seems that leadership in Mesopotamia could be brought to a complete standstill if the wrong omen turned up. Consider this letter from a caravan to its boss. My lord has written to me previously concerning the detention of the caravan destined for Katanim. I have been detaining these men for five days now, and they have used up their lambs in making extispices, liver omens. Let my lord send instructions as follows. Let not these men be detained. Let them go. The men are distressed. 
In other words, they were making the customary sacrifice and examination of a lamb's liver and kept getting a bad answer. Now they're fresh out of sheep, and the writer is asking his overseer to just force the issue and order the men to get a move on. There were many, many other classes of events that were subject to the diviner's art. Birth deformities, necromancy, astral signs such as the movement of stars and planets in relation to each other, eclipses, falling stars, comets, halos around the moon, and so on. Dream interpretation was also a common method. The complexity and long training needed to become a diviner stands in stark contrast to the situation in Israel. God alone picked the prophets and revealed information solely on a need-to-know basis. The Israelites were not allowed to use other means to gain information or coerce God into revealing what he did not want to reveal. No peeking. And yet, when Joshua expressed concern that others in the camp besides Moses demonstrated valid signs of divine prophecy, Moses replied, Would that all God's people were prophets. Another major difference between the Israelite prophets and the diviners and prophets of other nations was that for the most part the prophet in Israel had the last word, although the king or other official could ignore it. In other nations what a prophet said or what a diviner predicted could be subjected to verification by some other omen or additional test. This is probably one reason why divination is forbidden by the Bible. God may not be manipulated into tipping his hand if he doesn't want to. There is one exception to this rule that involves an oracle called the Urim and Thummim. As described in the Old Testament, this was a means of procuring a yes-no answer by drawing one or two stones from a pouch on the high priest's breastplate. One reason why this might have been allowed is that one didn't need special training or expertise in divination to select one of two stones at random, or interpret the meaning since it was either yes or no. No human skill was involved, hence there was little possibility that this kind of oracle would look or seem like pagan magic. Another interesting difference between the prophets at Mari and those in ancient Israel is that the Mari prophets and diviners always delivered their messages to the king and only the king. They never directed their messages to the rest of the people, as the Israelite prophets frequently did. Their messages were also free of any ethical or social demands. If they were tailored for the king's ears, that might not be surprising. But consider, as we did when we discussed the reign of King David, how his court prophet Nathan could accuse him of adultery and murder to his face in his own throne room and walk away unscathed. That by itself probably says as much or more about the difference between Israelite prophets compared to prophecy among other nations. 
but a predictive prophecy in Israel had a dark aspect as well. 1 Kings 22 tells the story of a joint campaign by Israel and Judah against Aram. Verse 5 and following reads thus, But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about four hundred of them, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? They said, Go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no other prophet of the Lord here of whom we may inquire? The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one other by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies anything favorable about me, but only disaster. True to form, Micaiah predicts disaster, but only after he at first agrees with the court prophets. When the king of Israel finally gets him to give him the straight story, Micaiah reveals that the kings were being set up by God for failure. God had put a lying spirit into the four hundred prophets. The implication of this section is that these other prophets were ecstatics, and were therefore unreliable, but the example of Nathan in David's court notwithstanding, it's not hard to imagine that a court prophet was always under at least some pressure to tell the king what he wanted to hear. Incidentally, the battle did not go well. The text does not say that one side or the other was victorious, but Israel's king, Ahab, died in the fight. The so-called classical prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the various minor prophets, such as Amos, Hosea, Habakkuk, Joel, and so on, do not owe their fame to predictions, although much of what they wrote has been taken that way for millennia. Instead, what arose through this series of visionaries was a profound ethical and social message that was ferocious, unremitting in its condemnation of any abuse of the vulnerable. The later classical prophets served as the conscience of Israel and Judah. Isaiah, in particular, constitutes an interesting case, since it is pretty clear, even with the little we know about him, that he was part of the very aristocratic class of Judah, and was therefore in a unique position to know their follies and excesses better than most. He also had more to lose by pointing out those foibles, but clearly that didn't stop him from doing so. His work also includes some of the most brilliant poetic works of the Old Testament that has resonated down to the present day. On the surface, this newer genre of social and ethical prophecy represents a significant shift in the sense that these classical prophets stood in opposition to the established government and, in some cases, even the religious authorities. The thing one needs to remember, however, is that there were many other colors and flavors of prophecy at this time. The most important of these were the court prophets, who served both as yes-men and played the role similar to political pundits in our time. They were numerous and well-established, but none of their writings have survived. The canonized work of the classical prophets 
has reached us because they were deemed worthy of preservation by later generations or through the work of their disciples. The verdict of hindsight is that these guys knew whereof they spoke. Even when specific predictions of the future did not pan out, and quite a few such prophecies did not, the overall tenor of their message and the depth of their general teaching made them worth saving. This brings us to another aspect of prophecy that was beyond the control of the prophets themselves, and that is how their work was interpreted by later readers. The Hebrew prophets in particular were subject to an intense level of scrutiny, and their work implicitly or explicitly inform not only Judaism, but Christianity and Islam as well as attracting the interest of thinkers, philosophers, reformers, and activists in many ages and many lands. How one chose to interpret prophecy depended on the assumptions one had about the nature of Holy Writ. As we saw a number of, of episodes ago, Jewish interpreters believed that the text itself had sufficient moral authority that so long as an interpretation was based on a biblical or prophetic text, one could tie it up in a knot, figuratively speaking, and wring interpretations from it that bore little or no resemblance to the subject under discussion. Interpreters also made efforts to contemporize prophetic works in particular, seeking, in other words, to show that the prophet was speaking specifically about one time, namely the time in which the interpreter was working, and that time only. Take a browse through any writing about the end times from any age, and you will see this form of prophetic interpretation in action. In fact, it is alive and well down to the present day. While it is true that Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 22 sets the criterion for real prophets, uh, being that their predictions come true, what is less well appreciated is that even when the prophet predicted some disaster, he was likewise within his rights to intercede with God to try to prevent the very thing he had predicted. Sometimes they were successful, sometimes not. The role of prophets was to counter what seemed to be the most trenchant threats to the community of believers in their particular time. Prophecy, as practiced by Moses, was intended for the liberation of Israel and to set up the prophet as a counter to the pagan magician, a monotheistic answer to polytheistic magic. Other prophets worked to blunt the effects of syncretism and infiltration of foreign gods into Judah and Israel, as we saw with Elijah and Elisha. Prophets were also key factors in warding off the threats posed by military incursion, as Deborah did in support of the campaign against the Canaanites. Samuel further helped protect Israel against the Canaanite threat by introducing the monarchy and the more complex, sophisticated governing structure that went with it. The classical prophets, by contrast, tried to protect Israel and Judah from the excesses of that same monarchy and attendant aristocracy by their uncompromising insistence on justice and compassion for the poor and the destitute, even at the expense of the cult, or by castigating their rulers and their religious authorities for their abandonment of the covenant and its ethical demands. 
As the Jews tried to piece their world back together after the disaster of Jerusalem's fall to the Babylonians, the exilic community drew much from the work of the prophets. There is a common rabbinic view that the prophets add nothing new to the Jewish religion. Everything they said could be recognized in the Torah. But other thinkers see in the prophetic corpus a progressive revelation that transformed Israel from a set of tribes bound by loose traditions and superstition into a universal system of ethical monotheism. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Thank you.